Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association. I'm Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the First World War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 9th of October 2017 and this is episode number 35. On this week's show, we have a lecture given by photographer and historian Michael Scheel on the Doughboys during the Great War. This talk was given as part of a series of national events organised by the United States Embassy in the UK to commemorate the US contribution to the First World War. It consisted of an exhibition and a series of talks given by Michael. This one was recorded when the exhibition was in Belfast. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much indeed for coming. Um, I'm really rather awed by being here in Belfast because as a photographer, I started my career in 1971 and I started it here in Belfast during your dark days. And um, so to have the exhibition here in the um, grounds of City Hall is fantastic. Some of you may have seen the exhibition last year, um, which was basically co-sponsored by the City of Belfast and by the Irish Department of Heritage and the, the Department of Foreign Affairs, which for me was very, very exciting because it was an exhibition which was shared across the border and after completion it appeared in St Stephen's Green and after there it went to Glasnevin Cemetery. Um, and we had a fantastic reception in Dublin. And so I'm very proud of that because the purpose of this exhibition is the message is contained in the words of a British veteran who wrote, No, they would not be lonely. There were too many of them. I should have, sorry, I should have explained. He's leaving the battlefield of the Somme for the last time. Sorry, it's timed out. Um, I saw the bare country, the miles and miles of torn earth, the barbed wire, the litter, the dead trees. But the country would come back to life. The grass would grow again, the wildflowers return. They would lie still and at peace below the singing larks. They could not feel lonely. They would have one another. And they would have us. We belong to them and they would be part of us forever. So this exhibition is hold, seeks to hold faith with that soldier's vision that time and nature would actually heal the wounds of war. That is the whole purpose of fields of battle, lands of peace. Now, I conceived this exhibition uh, back in 2005. Uh, I knew nothing of military history, and I met a very well-known British military historian, Professor Richard Holmes, who's now sadly dead, and we decided we were originally going to do a book, but then we decided the book was too narrow, and we wanted to have an exhibition. And that is how this exhibition has grown up. It is deliberately a free-to-view exhibition. If you like, you're the wrong audience because you are interested in the subject. Your presence here today shows that you're interested in the subject. The exhibition is really there to attract people who know nothing about the subject. They don't even know about it. And Photographically, we hope to entice people in and then they get involved and they start reading the content. So if you like, that is the purpose of the exhibition. And we've been very fortunate in some of the locations. In 2014, the French Senate gave us an exhibition on the railings of Les Jardins de Luxembourg in Paris. This was the French government's opening event of their centennial programme. And um, we then went... Uh, we were very fortunate with that, and we've now, since then, we've been in St James's Park in London. We've twice been in the City of London in the Guildhall. We've actually been now in nine countries, and we think, well, we know that our viewing audience has been somewhere over eight million people. So I think we've achieved our purpose, and to be back here in Belfast, where I know we're going to have a good audience again, is fantastic. This exhibition has been made possible by the National World War I Museum in the States, and by the American Embassy in London. I'm very grateful to them for the support they've given uh, because we really cannot operate without sponsorship. So this is, in fact, if you like, um, the message, and we will be hopefully 
doing another exhibition next year. This is it's literally, the exhibition you'll see out there today has literally just come from Edinburgh. Um, so we do get some very nice locations. I'm sorry, I'm just going to move the mouse out. That's better. Um, we do get some very nice locations. Um, the Americans did not come into the war. Very often people say, ah, the Americans came in so late. Well, I think this is something that one has actually got to make absolutely clear. The Americans did not come into the war late. They may have done by our standards, but when you look at America in 1917, as some of you who will have already heard me say this morning, America was not a nation in 1917. 30% of the American population had arrived in the previous 17 years. It was, a, it was an immigrant country. It was maybe a country, but it wasn't a nation. When you bear in mind that about 10% of the population was German, there were over 150 German language newspapers in America in 1917. So if you can imagine what would happen in this country if we said tomorrow that we were going to impose the draft on all people to go and fight a war in Iraq. Think of the social problems that we would have in the United Kingdom. That was the problem that faced Woodrow Wilson in 1914-17. He was not a man in favour of war as solving problems. But events basically began to overtake him and he adjusted accordingly. And he entered the war, when he did enter the war, for extremely good, strong moral reasons. But it took time to achieve a, if you like, an understanding in America that war was in fact an inevitable fact of life. And when you look at the American performance, in the United Kingdom we declared war in, April, in August of 1914 and it was not until July of 16 that we were able to put an army of about 250,000 men into battle on the Somme. So it took us effectively 23 months to put an army into the field. The Americans declare war in April of 17 and by June of the following year they have over 2 million men in Europe. They moved much faster than we did and they had to completely gear up for war. They did not have the manufacturing skills or capacity at that time. And when you think that this all had to be done, as I said, with a nation of disparate races, and to give you an idea of how disparate it was, the American 77th Division had 42 languages. So there was a problem of communication, even within the army, which in 1917 only consisted of 120,000 men, plus about 12,000 Marines. So very, very small armed forces when they went into the war. They had no artillery because they'd never needed it and they had no aviation because they'd never needed it. So America comes into the war in 1917 very, very unprepared. Now the battlefield as they approach came into it, you can see here the trench line. I'm afraid I, this hasn't got a pointer on it, but the black line effectively is the trench line of the Western Front as it had settled down by about Christmas of 1914. And that is where the French and British as allies and the Germans had been fighting for three years. And the war had degenerated into a total stalemate. Now the American army when it came over, commanded by General Pershing, and he had one very specific instruction. Whatever you do, don't allow your men to be used piecemeal by the French and the British. The French and the British between them had suffered about 800,000 casualties in 1916. We were short of men. That's what we wanted. We didn't want the American army, we wanted American manpower. And Pershing was given very specific instructions to keep his men together. Now, American involvement with the First World War does not actually start in 1917. American involvement with the First World War starts from the very, very early days. There's a huge tradition of American volunteers in the First World War, which goes largely unrecognised. Within months of the beginning of the war, 
A lot of Americans went and signed up with the French Foreign Legion. There's a poet called Alan Seeger, who's one famous example. But they also formed a thing called the American Ambulance Field Service, which served with the French Army and did extraordinary work with the French Army, largely comprised of young students from Harvard and Yale, Princeton, the Ivy League colleges. They were wealthy. Many of them knew Europe. They came over. And in many cases, their parents actually donated ambulances, Model T Fords, which were used as ambulances. And they formed this ambulance service. Some of them went on to form what became known as the Escadrille Lafayette, which is an American volunteer air force. But perhaps the most significant effort which the Americans put into the First World War from the very early days was support for the civilian populations of France and Belgium. Right at the beginning of the war, northern France was occupied, as was, was Belgium, and about nine million people were living under in occupied German territory. And agriculture basically ceased to exist. Men had gone off to join the army. Some were taken away as slave, uh, uh, for forced workers by the Germans. And there was a real threat of starvation throughout occupied Europe. And this void was filled by an American businessman. He was a mining engineer in London who realized there was going to be a problem. And he proceeded to set up a thing called the Belgian Relief Fund. And this fund basically supplied food donated by the Americans and shipped over to occupied Europe across battle lines because the British Navy had a blockade on continental Europe and so it had to be arranged, these ships had to be specially arranged to cross this border line, this battle zone. And over the duration of the war, the Belgian Relief Fund shipped 7 million tonnes of food. It is to this day still the largest ever humanitarian operation mounted. Quite extraordinary operation. The man who mounted it is one who's subsequently been rather discredited by American history because his name was Herbert Hoover. And he's regarded as being partly responsible for the Great Depression. But Herbert Hoover, this is where he really does a quite extraordinary feat with a staff of just 55 people, no faxes, no mobile phones, no modern communications, he manages to liaise and ship 7 million tons of food. And sadly, this is part of American history which has been almost completely forgotten. And it's a real, to me, it's a real shame that this has been forgotten because this is America, I think, at its greatest. America operating and looking out for the good of others without thought and heed. And I think it's this time that America really does show its colours uh, as an extraordinary nation. Um, which then becomes, of course, as we know, the great power of the, the last century. But it saved the people of northern France and Belgium. Make no mistake about that. They owe their lives to the benevolence of the American people. As I said, 1916, we have the battlefields of Verdun, which was probably the most concentrated and bloodiest battle of the First World War. Um, when we enter... We, when we undertake the Somme on July the 1st of 1916, we do so because the French are asking us to take the strain, because they are beginning to creak at Verdun. By June of 1916, they had lost 350,000 men. And when we think of trench warfare, by 1916, trench warfare doesn't really exist. You exist in shell holes like this. This, this is what the front lines look like. And there are accounts of French troops coming up at night to take up new positions and in the morning they realise that the man in the next shell hole has got the wrong shaped helmet. It was a very intermingled war and of course we then in Britain July the 1st 1916 we enter the Battle of the Somme and we tend to look at the Somme through the letterbox of July the 1st. We tend to think of that terrible day of 60,000 casualties of the Ulster Division and its losses um, and we forget that by the end of the Battle of the Somme, the British Army was a completely transformed organisation, and the Germans realised that they were not going to be able to defeat the British in the battlefield. So they took a momentous decision. 
in their efforts to try and defeat Britain. And that was that on January the 31st, 1917, they declared unconditional submarine warfare. Now this meant that any ship sailing for the United Kingdom could be sunk without warning. And as most shipping was coming from America, it had an immediate impact upon public opinion. The, America, the Germans had decided that if they could sink 500,000 tons of shipping a month, they could starve Britain and France out of a war. And in April of 1917, they sank over 500,000 tons of shipping. 25% of all ships sailing for Britain were sunk. There was five weeks of wheat left in the country. So if this battle had been lost, the Battle of the Somme would have meant nothing. This was a battle that had to be won. And of course in Northern Ireland, you know from the Second World experience of the Second World War what it meant, the Battle of the Atlantic. And it's a battle that we've forgotten about and when as we look, as we reduce our navy to virtually minimalistic, if we should ever have any form of conflict in the future, we're going to be very, very hard pushed because we do not have that capacity to supply ourselves um, for more than a few weeks at a time. This was the battle that had to be won. The Germans gambled that they would be able to knock us out of the war before the Americans came in. On April the, 20th, on April the 6th, 1917, America declares war. Because one of the things that happened, it's very interesting, um, probably Mr. Trump would probably call it fake news now, but what happened was was a young journalist, a man called Floyd Gibbons, worked for the Chicago Tribune, decided that um, with unconditional submarine warfare, there was a good story to be had here if you could get torpedoed. So he gets on a ship and he sails to Britain and he does indeed get, the ship gets torpedoed and two American civilians are killed. They die, they're drowned. A mother and daughter, within 35 minutes of, being, of reaching land, he files a very, very influential story, which is one of the things which helps change American public opinion and so America comes into the war. Now, as I've said at the time, America had a president who had tried very, very hard to broker peace between the central powers of Hungary, the Austro-Hungarian Empire and Germany, and the Russian, French and British allies. He tried very hard to broker peace, uh, was very disappointed when it failed, and I think it was with a heavy heart that he actually approached Congress and asked for a declaration of war. The Americans never entered into a formal alliance with the British and the French. They were part of a coalition, but there was never any formal alliance. And the Americans wanted to retain their independence as they come into the war. And initially, what happens is the American army arrive in France, and because Pershing is unwilling to allow his men to be used piecemeal by the British and French, they are put into quiet parts of the, front of the line. And this is actually um, in the Vosges Mountains in the east of France, which was very, fairly tranquil at the time. But you can see the graffiti there of a bored a bo a doughboy has carved his regimental insignia um, and, and USA 14. And if you look up here, you can see he's carved a cult, a cult um, automatic. So they are there. One of the disadvantages of this system is that the American forces don't really then have the opportunity to learn from the experience of the British and French. So their training is a little bit truncated in that sense. They're not actually experiencing real battle conditions. We then go through to the Americans, they hold parts of the line, and it's in May of 19. 18, that they first take um, offensive action at a place called Contigny on the Somme and basically American units are asked to go and take out a, a German salient which they do at Contigny very successfully. Uh, they lose very few men in the actual attack but then they discover that the Germans specialise in counter-attack and over the next two days they endure very, very heavy artillery bombardment um, and suffer quite heavy casualties. But a new force has arrived, 
And the Germans immediately start talking about, if you like, the tactical naivety of the, the American troops, but saying these are young and energetic men, um, and they're you know they are going to be a problem. Now, what then happens um, in May of 1918, on the 27th of May, is that the Germans launch an offensive here, in this area here. Um, they basically want to, they want to be able to capture Reims, uh, because there's a railway centre, and they create this salient down here from Soissons, down towards a place called Chateau Thierry, which is on the River Marne. And it's a desperate situation. The Germans make this advance in about three days. Nothing has been seen like it on the Western Front, and panic sets in. In Paris, the French government are packing their papers and planning to evacuate to Bordeaux. And on June the 4th, there is a cabinet meeting in London which actually discusses whether the British Army should withdraw from Ypres. Now, Ypres had been held by the British Army for four, four years. And the thinking was that the whole of the Western Front was about to collapse and the British Army should be withdrawn to the ports of Dunkirk and Calais to be able to get them out of France before the whole thing collapses. There is real panic in the Allied High Command. And what happens is that Pershing agrees to the release of American units to go to Chateau Thierry here to bolster the line and to hold the gap. And that is what happens. And this is, if you like, when the American forces first take the strain on the Western Front. They come in, the units that are rushed in, some of them are actually quite green, um, but they come in to Bellow Wood. And for the American Marine Corps, this has become their sacred ground, if you like, because they're put in here um, at the beginning of June. There's a a famous story, and it is pretty well documented actually, of a young marine officer. He's just got into his position. He and his men are digging uh, foxholes like this, and they meet a French army officer who says, uh, the order's to retreat. And the marine says, retreat? Hell, we just got here. Um, and it's that kind of spirit which epitomised the American doughboys, the American marines, um, at the beginning, uh, during the war, and it certainly impressed the Germans. Bellow Wood is a place of not really much tactical importance, but what is important about it is that it is where, as I said, the Americans take the strain, and um, this is a field where they attacked on June the 6th, and their tactical naivety was shown by the fact that they had marched, they advanced in much the same way that the British had done on July the 1st on the Somme, they tended to march in straight lines, in fact, one of the colonels says it was a magnificent sight. They reeled to the right as if on a parade ground and the lines were immaculate. Um, he got shot in the stomach for his pains. Um, but sadly, as the Marines advanced across this field, their commanding officer, or they, the, the divisional commander, Harwood, had actually decided that he hadn't done a reconnaissance of the wood and um, they marched towards the wood where the Germans were waiting for them with their machine guns. And in this particular field, the Marines lost more men on June the 6th, 1918, than they'd lost in their entire previous history. It was a catastrophe for them. But other things happened that day. Down this track, there's a village on the right-hand side, you can see there's a little village called Buresh, and um, a young marine officer is advancing down here. His uh, commanding officer is described as wearing his best suit and smoking a corn cob pipe. He gets shot and killed. And um, this young officer gets hit in the head. And he is badly wounded. Well, he's, he's knocked out. And he comes around, and one of his men is pouring wine on his head. And he says, for God's sake, Tom, don't waste the wine. Give me a drink. Um, has a drink. And then with 18 men, he goes into that village. And he captures it. It was a three-company target, objective, meaning about 500 men were required. He takes it with 18 men, and he is subsequently awarded Distinguished Service Cross. And um, his man name is Clifton Cates, and he is a legend in the United States Marine Corps. He goes on to command them at Iwo Jima during the Second World War, 
and he becomes one of their very, very revered marine commandants. This is his first day in action. So there is a distinct caliber to young Americans. They come, many of them from immigrant stock, many of them are backwoodsmen, so they are skilled at moving around in woods and places like that. They're also very good shots, and we'll come on to that later on, about their ability uh, of that nature. But this is where America is beginning to build up its experience and confidence on the battlefield. And what, now in Britain, we tend to talk about the last 100 days, starting on August the 8th, the Battle of Amiens, when we say, right, this is when we really start to push the Germans back. Actually, I think that's wrong, because as I said earlier on, the Germans attack from this line up here and along the top of this map, they attack down and they create this huge salient down to Chateau Thierry. But what happens is that on July the 18th, the French general Manding decides that he's going to launch a counter-offensive. And he does that with American divisions actually supporting here, here, and here. The Americans go into action on the 18th of July, and they actually take a huge amount of ground. In the first two days, they advance about eight or nine kilometers. So what I'm saying is that whilst the British history view is, ah, it all starts to go wrong for the Germans on August the 8th, I would say it actually starts to go wrong for them here on July the 18th, when having created this huge salient, it's attacked and they have to pull out and retreat. And this is done with a huge amount of American input, particularly down here um, at a place called Mezzi, which is, and here in America, the Germans push down on the 15th, they launch a huge barrage, they cross the river, and two American battalions hold on in Mezzi and this area of ground, and they become known as the Rock of the Marne. They actually hold the Germans at this point and then begin to push them back three days later. It's an extraordinary performance. There's some incredible individual actions. There's one young officer. He's a, an observation officer. He has seven horses shot from under him in the course of the day. Seven horses are killed. He's finally badly wounded, but he wins a Medal of Honor for his duty on that day. There's another interesting character there, a man called Willant. Um, and his brother actually becomes the American ambassador to the United Kingdom in the Second World War. And he is only the second American to be given the Order of Merit, uh, along with Eisenhower. Um, but, so there are some very, very interesting characters involved in this action. And one of the things about the First World War is there are many, many American officers who then go on to great public life in the rest of the century. People like George Marshall, who is actually uh, a staff officer in this campaign. This is where he learns about his organizational skills and eventually, of course, we know, then creates what is known as the Marshall Plan, uh, which helps rebuild Europe after the, the Second World War. This is the Marne River, where they were held. You can see it's quite a big river. Um, the Germans had to put bridges across and pontoons. And likewise, three days later, the Americans pushed back across it. But this is a key turning point in the history of the First World War, because this is the furthest extent. The Germans had got here in 1914. They get here in 1918. But as I said, July the 18th is when we begin to push them back. And we then begin a process where really the campaign against Germany does not cease um, until the armistice on November the 11th. Um, and this is one of the hills in the Marne. And again, we Brits have forgotten our history because two British battalions, uh, this is a place called the Montagne de Bligny, two British battalions actually fight in this Marne offensive. It's known as the Battle of Tardinois. And oddly enough, both of them win the Croix de Guerre, unit Croix de Guerre's in taking of this hill. So we are involved in the Marne as well as the Americans. And you can see here, uh, the young name of Corporal Maidley. Um, this is in a quarry where he took refuge with his unit um, on, near a town called Leon in, um, in, in, in March of 1918. And um, age 20 years, first time in France. 
And there he is in uh, the cemetery at Bellow Wood, one of uh, about 56,000 young American servicemen who actually died in service on the um, <coughs> Western Front. Little word about the American battlefield, the Monument Commission. They maintain the, their, the equi uh, their American equivalent of our Commonwealth War Graves Commission. And um, there's a very nice connection here between the First and Second World Wars because the crosses are made out of Carrera marble. It's brilliantly white and it's very hard to see the lettering. And if you want to see the lettering like that, what you do is you go to the superintendent of the cemetery and he gives you a bucket of sand. And you rub the sand into the lettering um, to make it stand out. And that sand is taken from Omaha Beach, the D-Day landing beach. So there's a very nice connection between the First um, and the Second World Wars. The Americans, unlike the British, who buried all their war dead in France and where they fell, Americans were given the opportunity to take their dead back to um, America and about 60% of all American dead were in fact repatriated back to the United States. Um, the First World War, the Americans were far, far faster to incorporate women into their um, battle efforts. Uh, the Marines from a very early stage were actually employing uh, what they called hello girls who manned switchboards and were signalers. And from a very early time, American nurses were involved. Um, this nurse actually died of, 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 of fever. Um, that, that is what he said. And um, there's another nurse in this cemetery who actually, she died because she actually was involved in a gas attack. And she gave her gas mask up for a wounded man. And she subsequently died of, of complications from the gassing that she'd had. Americans also supplied doctors to the British forces you look at a lot of regimental battalion photographs 1917, 1918, you will actually see um, doctors with American slouch hats. So they were actually contributing to our medical services um, as well as their own. They were also involved in northern Italy. If you've ever read Hemingway, For Whom the Bell Tolls, set in Italy, he had a short time there as an ambulance worker. Um, and they were involved in the crossing of the Piave River uh, late in 1918. So they're, they're, they're involved in the First World War. It's far, far wider than we give them credit for. And as I said, August the 8th, this is the battlefield of Amiens where we start to push back and the Americans become a very integral part of the attack. And they attack, uh, they help break the Hindenburg Line late in September of 1918. Uh, it's not a most successful action. There is still conflict between communications between British and American command, but the crossing of the St. Quentin Canal, uh, this is Reekval Bridge, which is very famously taken by the, Middle, by the Midlands Division um, to enable us to get through this massive defensive line. And from this day on, this is when the war begins to decline. The Americans, after their action um, in the Marne, they then move eastwards to the Samuel Salient and they take place uh, they, in September, they actually attack at the Samael, and this is give you an idea of the strength of German defences. The Germans, once they arrived in France in 1914 and set out their battle lines, they then proceeded basically, they weren't interested in attacking anymore, but neither were they going to retreat. So they built some extraordinary fortifications, where of course the British and French, because we were there to push the Germans out, we never built permanent fortifications of this nature. We would always work in trenches that were basically dug in the earth and sandbags. The Germans had these extraordinary uh, stone-bricked congregations. But the American attack at Samuel was extremely successful. They were pushing at an open door. The Germans had already decided to retreat. And this photograph shows the, the actual plane of which the attack took place. And you can see that, that hill of Mont Sec with the beautiful American memorial on it. And if ever you, any of you go to the battlefields, look at the American battlefields, always go to the American monuments, first of all, because you'll find they have the most beautiful battle maps. They really are superb maps, which are laid out, generally speaking, 12, 15 feet in diameter, laid out as a sort of, um, as a mosaic. Um, 
Um, but that's by the by. But this is where the Americans again take this huge, they make an effort, it's the first time as a concentrated army, but at the same time they're told, in 12 days time, you are going to attack at a place called Meurs-Argonne. And what this means is that the Americans actually have to move 600,000 men about 70 miles at night in a 12-day period. It's quite extraordinary. There were only three roads that they could use, and they were doing it at night. Uh, so an extraordinary performance to move those 600,000 men. And this is where George Marshall, as I said, mentioned earlier, this is where he really achieves fame um, as, a, as a coordinator. And they attack at Meurs-Argonne. And to this day, Meurs-Argonne is the largest involvement of American ground troops in any one battle in their history. Completely forgotten about by the majority of the American public. If you ask Americans about the biggest battle, they'll probably say Gettysburg or D-Day or... Uh, Vietnam, but this is where it happens, is Meurs-Argonne. 1.2 million men go into action. A massive performance. As I said, we mustn't say the Americans were slow in coming into the war, because once they came in, they moved incredibly quickly and incredibly incisively. And Meurs-Argonne uh, starts on September the 25th, and um, it's not an easy battle. It starts off fairly well, but it soon bogs down, they have problems with logistics. I mean, supplying 1.2 million men is quite a nightmare when you, you, you know, you've never done anything like this before. But they do it particularly successfully. This is a place called Montfosson, which is an, a German observation position. And in fact, you can see this square tower here. If you look, it's been adopted into a German observation position. And this was a height which dominated the, the eastern part of the Verdun battlefield um, at the beginning of Meurs-Argonne. And another extraordinary place um, is known as the Butte de Vauquois. And this is a hill at the beginning of the Meurs-Argonne. It's a very steep ridge. And basically what happened was the French and Germans get here in Christmas of 1914, and they then spend the next four years mining and countermining. And what I mean by that is they would dig a tunnel under the opposing trenches, fill it with explosives, and blow it up. And over a four-year period, there were over 300 explosions. I'm sure many of you will have been to the Somme and you'll have seen Loch Nagar. Loch Nagar is but a pimple compared to this. This is the equivalent of seven Loch Nagars in a line. To give you an idea of the scale, that is the French front line, that is the German front line, and they're 54 paces apart. And they were there for four years. They actually came up with a very interesting live and let live. They basically agreed that they would only blow mines at 6 o'clock in the morning. So at 6 o'clock in the morning, both sides would get out of the trenches and go back, wait, wait till 10 past 6, no bang, they'd get back in the trenches. One morning there would be a bang, means higher command, they're happy because you're still trying to blow up the enemy, but you actually haven't kicked the enemy's backside, so he's not going to kick your backside. And basically that is what happened here in 1917. Um, if you can go there today, there are 15 kilometres of tunnels under here quite extraordinary. And my point is that for four years there had been this battle here, the Americans come along and on the first day of the Meurs-Argonne they managed to isolate this hill, they pepper it with gas and just go around the sides. And one of the men who was responsible for firing those gas shells was a man called Harry Truman, who later goes on to become President of the United States and he said that um, Whatever he did in later life, he learnt in the First World War. He had a reputation for being an extremely good officer. He didn't lose a single man in combat the entire time, so he did extremely well. Um, and this gives you an idea of the scale of the works at Vauquois. This is an entrance into one of the German dugouts, which would take about 2,500 men. So quite extraordinary works, and it was really a considerable feat of arms for it to be taken in such a short time. Um, this is a memorial to the 371st Regiment, and it's near a place called Seychaux. And um, it's actually um, a bit of a sad reflection on, on American history, because um, the American Armed Forces in the First World War practiced very strict segregation. Very strict segregation. And this was one of the black battalions, and a man called Freddie Stowers uh, go, is killed at this spot 
and um, he's put up for a medal but the documentation gets lost and it's only about 20 years ago that he was actually finally given a medal of honour and there's another interesting little um, regiment there which were started out life as the 15th New York National Guard they were actually um, raised in Harlem they were black troops and uh, when they went to, to when war broke out they were they were actually very enthusiastic because they thought that by actually playing an active part in the war they could actually prove that they were worthy um, if you like of desegregation however when they arrived in France they were very dismayed to discover that no they were going to be digging ditches and doing manual work which was not exactly what they'd signed up for and um, so they were then transferred to the French army where they became the, three, the 369th Regiment d'Infanterie, and the French thought they were fantastic. They actually spent more time in action than any other American unit. They were highly decorated. The French gave them a, a unit croix de guerre, and um, they did in fact incredibly well. And, um, but from my point of view, the most important thing about them is that their band brought jazz to Europe. So their band was known as the Harlem Hellfighters. And they actually were an extremely well-known jazz band. The French thought they were fantastic because the story is that as they came down the gangplank um, at Marseille, they were actually playing uh, the Marseillaise but in jazz syncopation. And the French just thought this was fantastic. Um, and they, became, they, they were given um, a ticker tape reception when they got back to New York and a very, very distinguished bunch. But, so if you like, this is one of the memorials um, that they have there. Um, and it, 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 it's um, something of which they're very, very proud. Um, Merzargan was these very deep, thick woods, very, very hard fighting. Uh, these are some German trenches um, in, in, in the woods, which even to this day are pretty impenetrable. And some of the descriptions uh, of the fighting there in 1918 describe how you couldn't see more than 30 or 40 yards through the forest because it was so dense. Very, very hard. And one of the things that happened there, one of the famous actions of the First World War, is um, uh, an American unit advanced too fast, they got cut off, and they became known as the Lost Battalion. Um, they were never really lost as such, it's just that they got their map references wrong, so for five days they were looking for them until uh, they found them. About 450 men went into the action, and when they came out, only 180 of them were unscathed. And sadly, the commanding officer, Colonel Whittlesey, was so horrified by, I think, by his, his mistake in his map reading and B, his casualties, that two years after the war was over, he committed suicide. But when I first went there, you could still find ammunition clips lying this in what's known as the pocket. So there are still real visible traces of the First World War to be seen on the battlefields, even to this day, where you can actually go there and, as you see, pick up live rounds of ammunition. Another famous action of the First World War, uh, which many of you may have heard of, is the action of Sergeant York. Um, Sergeant York was from Kentucky. Um, he, he was basically, uh, the advance of his unit was held up by machine guns, and he was or ordered with some other men to go see if they could outflank these machine guns and um, dispose of them that way. York um, goes off with about 20 of them, and they get round behind the German lines, they come across a party of Germans, there's an exchange of fire, some of York's com commanding NCO is, 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 is killed, and York then proceeds, most extraordinary piece of um, uh, musketry, if you like, um, he's attacked by about 20 Germans charging down the hill towards him, and he casually kills at least 15 of them, single-handedly, with his rifle and his... his, his his Colt Automatic, and it becomes a famous action. Um, he actually ends up taking back 132 prisoners and five machine guns. Quite extraordinary performance, um, Sergeant York. And these are the woods where that action took place. Uh, again, I'm talking about this individuality of the American soldier, his capacity to um, react very quickly to reactions, 
And they were a feisty bunch, there's no doubt about it. This is another action um, which is very much beloved by the Kansas City Museum because here a man called Jack Barkley fights an extraordinary action which he basically, he's a forward observation officer, in other words he's been set forward to tell the artillery where the enemy are. The, uh, the Germans are in these woods here and Barclay is on the top of this hill up here. When he sees the Germans coming out of this wood, Barclay's unit is on the other side of this hill so they can't see anything. Barclay sees the Germans coming out of this wood and preparing to attack up over that hill. He's on his own. So what he does is he picks up a machine gun which has been abandoned on the battlefield. He crawls into a burnt-out French tank, which is up on this hill, and as the Germans come towards him, he opens fire. He keeps he, the Germans bring up a field gun to try and show him out of the tank. He manages to kill the, the, the field gun crew before they're able to open fire, and then they launch an attack on him, and over a period of about five hours, it is estimated, it's reckoned, that he killed about 5,000 men on his own. When they, sorry, five, 500, I beg your pardon, 500, sorry. Now, I'm getting, I'm getting, you'll see in a minute, in a minute why it is that I said 5,000. He goes back to his unit, thinks nothing of it, and a few days later he's called out, and he's given a Medal of Honor. Because when two officers went into the tank and counted the shell cases, they found over 5,000 shell cases. He fought a one-man battle for about five hours. When you think a machine gun normally took five, a four-man four crew, he manned a machine gun on his own for five hours. Quite extraordinary action. He gets the Medal of Honor. And this particular place, um, rather undistinguished-looking bit of country between two woods at Mozambique. Well, in fact, the reason for this photograph is that um, a young man here. And sorry, I do, I do my talks without notes because I like to be spontaneous and I've immediately forgotten his name. I'm very sorry. What happens here, Ernest Rentmore, sorry, Ernest Rentmore is a young American soldier. He describes how he's sent back with a message and he is gassed um, and forced to the ground. In, 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 and this is where it happens, this incident. Ernest Rentmore is 13 years and 10 months probably the youngest American, almost certainly the youngest American soldier in the First World War. But um, those of you who remember MASH may remember Colonel Potter, who lied about his age, the First World War, fought in the Second World War, and the Korean War. So did Ernest Rentmore. Earns up as a full-ranking colonel in the United States Air Force. Quite a character, I think. But that's where he first encounters war. Um, this is a beautiful place um, gives you an idea of the scale of war in those days uh, this is a place called Mollyville and if you see the tree there as you can see in the mist to advance from that tree to where I took this photograph the Americans took three and a half thousand casualties very very hard front war it really was and as I said today place of real beauty and thing um, and this photograph, those of you, you may remember the first photograph, that landscape. This picture uh, depicts the last American soldier to be killed in the First World War. Um, he's killed literally with seconds to go on November the 11th. There is an account, the American account, is they were attacking um, a German machine gun position and his comrades said, hey, you know, cool it, you know, it's time to go, just don't be so keen. And they also narrate how the, the Germans are going, no, 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 get down, get down, don't, 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 don't come. He continues to attack and he's killed. What I find so extraordinary about this story is that that young man, he came from Baltimore, his name was Henry Gunther. He was German, serving in the American army and killed with just seconds to go by men who, if he'd stayed down, maybe a minute later they'd have embraced him and said, my brother, my brother. So, Henry Gunther is just one of 56,000 young men. The Americans actually lost about 120,000 men in the First World War. Many of them died as a result of Spanish influenza. 
It was the scourge of both American and German armies during the closing months of the war. And in fact, as I said earlier on, it's now estimated about 40 million people died around the world um, of that terrible, terrible scourge, which is um, things of war. And I think, to finish, I'd like to read the words of a British veteran, but I think, I'd like to think it applies to soldiers of all nationalities um, in these days. And this is by a man called uh, Charles Dewey, who wrote, They sleep, many of them on the uplands of France. They ask for no reward, no sunlit fields of heaven. They played a man's part and held their heads high, till death came in a roaring whirlwind, and one, little, one more little hour was played. Yet, perhaps, as they sleep, they hear a voice across the ages. Well done. Thank you very much. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time. <laughs>